All right? Uh, turn your Bibles to Mark verse 40. Mark 1, verse 40. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We'll bring a Bible to you. Don't feel weird about this. People do it every week. We want you to follow along. Anybody? Yeah, there you go. Okay, Bibles, there it is. Everyone's always reluctant until I say, don't feel weird. I don't know why that is the thing that makes you feel better. But bring Bibles. Turn to Mark 1, or, yeah, Mark 1, verse 40. Now, here's what we're doing. Uh, we are in week six of this. And last week, we, we talked about how Christ... In his ministry, now public, people are hearing about it. The noise is starting to happen. Authority has been established. This guy's the real deal. He's not just some clown, okay? Jesus is on the scene. As we saw last week, him get away to pray, and then after he's prayed, he goes back out and he preaches the gospel. And so we established last week was something that is very near and dear to Redemption Church, and it's this statement of, uh, of gospel-centered and outward-focused. That in everything we do, we look to be centered around the gospel of Jesus Christ. That story needs to be the center of everything we do here at the church and everything we do as Christians. So then when we begin to think, okay, when we look outward, when we think about, okay, what's next? What do I do with this belief? What do I do with this faith? All of that is dependent upon what you believe about the gospel. And so we talked about the gospel story, how amazing it is, and how transformed it is for us, and how it sets us on a trajectory and a mission to do that which we see Christ do in the gospel of Mark and throughout the rest of the Bible. Okay? And so in this outward-focused idea, we see two of the most outward-focused moments that Jesus will ever do in this story, or in this, in this gospel, in his life. Now, both of these stories, I feel, are those type of stories that shape culture, Right? that shape kind of an ethos, that shape your mind around, okay, it's like one of those things where you say, man, I remember where I was at when this happened. And so for example, so I bet you I go around the room and ask every single one of you what you were doing when 9-11 happened, right? Like how you woke up, what that looked like. You remember that moment vividly because it's one of those moments that shape your worldview, that shape what you believe about God, that shape what you believe about the world, that shape what you view about yourself, and your part in it. I remember I had a sleepover that night. You guys remember those sleepovers? We had to, hey, Mom, can Ryan come stay the night? You know, you had to plan it out like three days in advance. No, you guys didn't do those? Okay. I'm going to say this right now. The only time I'm going to say it. There's not many of you, so we're going to need a little more activity on your end, okay? So a sleepover, right? Ryan, my buddy, is one of my best friends in the whole world, and he's sleeping over. And all of a sudden, it's like, you know, 7 in the morning or something, and we have school that day. And my mom bursts in the door and she is a 4'11", tiny little power-packed Asian woman that just high-pitched voice. She runs into the room, bashes open the door, wakes us up and says, they're bombing us! And, and my, my, Ryan and I, we just, I mean, literally woke up as she comes in the door and we're, we're who? Who's, what's going on? She says, they're bombing us, they're bombing us, come on! Runs us downstairs and puts us in front of the television. And there it is, right? Two buildings at that no, just one building at that point was on, on fire and the second was coming and and immediately everything changes in my mind. Like, wait a minute. What, what do you mean? Like a plane flew into the World Trade Center. Oh, and then and then I mean, my brother lives in Manhattan, he's a stockbroker, is he okay? Right? All of these things begin running through my mind. My entire worldview changes because this event was so shaping for our society. Everyone in here, where were you when 9-11 happened? You know exactly. I believe these two moments are those type of moments. That shaping. Where were you when Jesus cleansed the leper? 
Where were you when those guys, those crazy guys, remember that they came and they tore open the roof of Jesus' house and they threw a paralytic in there that he could be healed? Where were you guys when these crazy things happened? And how did it shape your worldview? How did it shape the culture surrounding Jesus and his mission over the last few years of his life? And that's what we get to be a fly on the wall. And we get to see into this moment and say, man, this is what you're talking about? That's crazy. And that's what we look at today. So let's start in verse 40 with the first story, first of these two stories. Okay? One thing, actually, let me say this one thing before we jump into this. Where we're going today, and I just want to give it to you on the front end so that when we get to the tail end, you're just like, okay, this, this kind of all makes sense. Okay, where we're going is, I want us to see that in the midst of this, Jesus Christ, our Savior, right? The guy the Bible talks all about that Christianity has been centered on for years and, two, for years and years, 2,000 years, exactly. That was a weird way to say that. For 2,000 years, okay? Um, this guy, he restores you and restores me in every possible way he can do it. He restores all of you. So he restores you socially, he restores you emotionally, he restores you physically, and he restores you spiritually. That every part of your life that might have some broken sin, Jesus Christ comes into and restores that aspect of it. And here's, here's the kicker. He can do this because he's God. Like he can do this because he's God. And this has to be part of the story because if it's just another miracle worker, which did exist at this time, there were other people going around doing some of the things you would see. If he's not God, none of the gospel matters. But what Jesus does in both of these instances, in both of these stories, is he claims the authority and the identity of God in the flesh. And it's because of that reality that we can understand truly that once and for all, someone has come to restore you, all of you, for the rest of your life. Okay? So here we go. Verse 40, first story says this. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Right? So Jesus, there's a crowd coming. He says, I'm going to go preach. And so here he is. This is the first instance we have after last week where he says, I'm going. He begins to preach in this leper begins to approach. And I, w- I just want to picture or set the scene for you a little bit, give you a little, little picture of what's going on here. So you've got this leper. Now, a leper in the first century here, okay, what he had to do was stay 50 paces away from anyone at all times, right? That if, if he was to come closer than 50 paces to another human being, he would be against the law. And so imagine me to the red chairs and a little bit beyond, right? Like we, we could not be this close if I was a leper. He had to have unkempt hair. He had to wear tattered clothes. And he had to cover the bottom of his face and everywhere he went screaming, unclean, unclean, unclean. So everyone would know that this guy is a leper. Not part of our society, shunned to the outside, socially, emotionally, physically and spiritually broken. He is outside, not worthy to be part of this city. And so the fact that this guy, this leper, right, he begins to walk towards Jesus, gets to him and kneels before him. You can picture the crowd, right? Jesus not stepping back, but stepping forward. The crowd around him, which was clamoring to touch and be part of Christ's life, they're backing away. So you get Jesus stepping forward, but the crowd backing away as this leper approaches. And he says this, verse 41. <clears throat> Or sorry, verse 40. If you will, you can make me clean. If you will, you can make me clean. What a statement of faith by this leper. 
amidst all of the regulation and the reality of the moment of why he should never even be there, this guy has the faith to go to him and says, Man, I don't question your ability, but would you actually love me that much? Because no one else has. See, because I look around this world, my worldview is, is that I'm outside, I'm not with it, no one wants any part of me. And so I know you can heal me, but I don't have this, this, this idea of even, will you? Why would you want to? I'm unclean, I'm dirty, but I'm going to put myself at your feet and ask you to do this. If you will, you can make me clean. Verse 41, moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. Now, if the leper approaching Jesus amidst all of the regulation, amidst all of the societal pressure, was not already a big enough deal, this is even bigger. Because the leper, right, he breaks law and he comes and he kneels before this rabbi, kneels before Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Filled with pity. Now, this is, this is not uh, Mr. T, I pity the fool pity. This is Jesus Christ, pity, compassion, love pouring out of his soul. I have pity on you. I love you. Reaches out his hand and touches this leper. Now, again, if it was a big deal for the leper to even come and be at Jesus' feet, it is a far greater, bigger deal for the Savior of the world, for God, for any man for that matter, to reach out and touch a leper. You see, what, what Jesus is doing as he reaches out and touches, he's breaking all sorts of rules right now. Because it was said that, man, if you reached out and you touched the leper, you yourself then were made unclean. What Jesus was putting on himself, this new reality, okay, if I touch you, I will take on your uncleanness. Something beautiful happens, though. Because the result of Jesus reaching out and touching this leper is not that Jesus is made unclean, it's that the man is made clean. So Jesus flips the entire script on its head. And so what should have made Christ unclean instead, because he's God, because he's Jesus, makes this man, uncle- makes this man clean. Restoring him in every way that he thought would never be possible again. All of a sudden, this social burden of being the outcast, being the one that was always kind of shoved to the side, demoralized, is taken away. The emotional pain of having to be that guy, struggling through the sadness and the anger and the frustration, the why me, gone. The physical, actual, like the skin disease that was leprosy, gone. And then the spiritual reality that he was once divided and away from the Savior, but now is in communion with him once again. Fully restored back into society. This is the Savior. This is Jesus. This is what he does. What an amazing, where were you when this happened? Do you, I mean, just imagine, this, right, Mark, this is an eyewitness account. Peter telling Mark, hey, this is what would happen. This is what was going on. And where were you when this went down? Man, this, this is exactly this. Man, I couldn't believe it. This guy, he had no business talking to Jesus, but he was, he came right to him. And, and you know what I thought Jesus was going to do? I thought Jesus was going to walk the other direction. But he didn't. He reached out and he touched this guy. And you know what? He... Nothing happened to him. Everything happened to this guy and he was made clean and he is fully restored. What an amazing story. I was there and it changed the way that I viewed the world. 
it changed the way that I viewed society. It changed the way that I viewed God. It changed the way that, if this is true, it changes the way we think about Jesus. He's not just this far off Savior. He is intimate with brokenness. And we've all got it, right? We've, we've all got a little bit of that. <coughs> Excuse me. Excuse me. Now, um, I want to say this generally as we look at this story and we'll look at the next one too. Uh, we're generally the leper. Like if we think about it, we, we tend uh, to want to identify with Jesus, I think, but we're, we're probably more the leper in this story and we'll get to that in just a bit. But here's a moment where I want to highlight, if you're a Christian here and we're the church, this, this, is, this has got to be us. Like we got to be Jesus in this moment. We have to say, okay, like we can't just walk in this like Christian awkward bubble thing where we don't go out and touch those who are hurting. That's just not why we're here. And so we reach out and we care for everybody. Okay. See, what we think might make us unclean, and we're going to talk a little bit more about this uh, in the world but not of the world thing next week. But I just want to say, man, that is the mission of the church is to go and be the hands and feet of Christ that reach out and touch the broken of this world. That is just, that is mandate for us. And so how are we doing? Okay. How are we doing? Now, uh, verse 43 comes around and something peculiar happens because it's very contrary to culture. Let me read it. Verse 43, And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priests and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. See, only priests could deem someone cleansed, deem someone clean. And so he's, listen, go and do this. Verse 45, But he went out and began to talk freely about it and, and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. So this is strange to us. This, this doesn't make a ton of sense because normally when we do something great, we want the world to know, right? It's instantaneous. We have Twitter now. I just did something fantastic, right? Selfie with whoever celebrity you ran into that day. Look at what I did. It is a culture of boasting and a culture of pride. And, and look, I'm all about it. Like I jump into that all the time, right? How many Instagram pictures did it take for me to finally choose one? And so we are filled with this. As soon as something cool or great happens, we want the world to know we were part of it. But what Jesus says is, you know what? I know I just did something amazing and I know everyone's going to want to talk about it and I even know it's going to make me look really, really good. But I want you to go and tell nobody. I, I, don't, I want you to go to the priest and have him deem you, deem you clean. I want you to just take care of your business. Don't go and just tell everybody this story. And I think there's a few different reasons. I think one, it's just the character of God. There's a humility in him that was not seeking this self-service. This, okay, this is about me type of thing. I think that's the first one. I think the second one is there was a reality that Jesus knew he had some other stuff still to do. Right? Like, like this, he wasn't ready to be crucified tomorrow. And so he's like, okay, there's some stuff I still got to do here. And so uh, don't go tell anybody because the more people find out about what I'm doing, the worse this is going to be for me. But I think the third reason, which I think, uh, at least for me, I think is the most convicting. And I think, that, I, I think it, because you see this throughout every gospel, that Jesus often will go and say, okay, I just did this miracle, but I don't want you to tell anybody. And I think it's because he fears that as humans, we will go and worship the miracle and not the miracle maker. That we would live for the miracle. We would live for the good thing. We would live for what God can offer us and not God himself. 
Now, I've shared this illustration here before, and I even asked Nate before I got up here. I said, hey, man, I, 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 you know, can I use this illustration? I haven't used it for like a year and a half or two years, and it's just so convicting to me and so good. You know, can I use it? And he said, yeah. So if you've heard this before, I, I'm sorry, but Nate said it was okay. So uh, are you guys familiar? There's a pastor, author, uh, evangelist, Asian dude named Francis Chan, okay? And uh, he's written some good books, good dude, right? And uh, he has this story, and he shared it with me, and I want to share it with you guys because it was, the, uh, it was the story that I think maybe more than any other illustration in my life helped shape the way I view God and my relationship with him. And so I had just become a Christian. This is in the year, this is in 2002. I was at Christmas conference with Campus Crusade for Christ in San Diego, California. And Francis Chan was one of the speakers. And he goes up there and he begins to tell this story. And he was talking about idolatry. And he tells this story. And I'll, I like to tell it from his perspective. So I'm going to channel my inner Francis, okay? Not fully, but a little bit. And so Francis, he says he comes home. He says, the best part of my day Every single day, the best part of my day is when I get home and I pull up the driveway and I go to open my door. And I tell you, every time I open up my door, there's a resistance on the other side. And when I look through the window, there's my beautiful daughter. And she's there and she's just ready to greet me. And I come out the door and she leaps into my arms and we rejoice and we laugh and we go inside. We find my wife and we have family time together. It's the best part of my day every day when I get home from work. He says, there, there comes a time where, where my daughter, she begins, she, she noticed this dollhouse and she's like, ah, oh, God, Dad, I really want this dollhouse. Can I have this dollhouse? I said, no, sweetie, we, you know, you don't need it. We don't have the money right now. But she kept asking and she kept coming. And so I love her and so I wanted to buy her the dollhouse. And so the weekend came and so I went out and I bought the dollhouse and I built it for her and I built it in her little playroom. And I, I showed it to her, opened up the door to the playroom, and she runs to the dollhouse and she rejoices. She's so excited. I, Dad, thank you, thank you, I love you. She jumps back in my arms, hugs me, celebrates, and says, God, I, I, why do I keep saying God? Frank, Dad, what's his name? Dad, Dad, I'm so thankful for you. I love you. Thank you for getting me this gift. Right. He says, it was not but Monday but there I was, I came home from work and I pulled into my driveway and I go to open up my car door and there's no resistance. And I get out of the car and I go into the, through the front door and I go into the kitchen and I see my wife and I say, where's, where's our little girl? She says, I think she's upstairs. And so I walk up the stairs and I open up the door to the playroom and there she is and she's playing with this dollhouse. And I call out to her and I say, sweetheart, and she never turns. And I said a bit louder, I say, sweetheart. And she never turns. And I say it one more time, sweetheart. And she doesn't turn. And so I closed the door. And I went back outside into the hallway. And so he tells this story, right? I'm, I'm back into me. This is me now, not Francis. So back to me. And so he says, it was in that moment that I was not, he was not angry, he was not frustrated. He said it was in that moment for the very first time in his life as like a 35, 40-year-old man, did he realize the depths of his idolatry and how God has given him consistently good thing after good thing after good thing, which are meant to be enjoyed by his people, but never meant to be worshipped more than God himself. And I remember hearing that and just like, oh, dang it. And I think that's a fear of Christ here. 
I, I think there's a fear here in, in, in Jesus to say, man, I, I, the miracles are great and I'm going to do them and I want people to be restored fully and you'll see the physical restoration and I want that to happen, but please don't worship the miracle. Asking us right now, are we in it? Are you a Christian? Are you considering it because you want the miracle or because you want the miracle maker? Because you want the good things that Christ can offer or is it because you want Christ? That's a great question. Okay. And I think he asked them, and he's like, don't go tell people because that, this will happen. And, and guess what? It ha- I mean, when, when Paul writes the letter to the Roman church, right, chapter one, what does he say? He says, man, you know what? You've worshipped the creature instead of the creator. And so he goes right at what Jesus is probably trying to be beware of right here. He says, okay, it, Paul says it's just rampant in the church. And so what, what are we in this for? Let's keep going. Jesus more popular than ever in our second story here. Let's get moving. Verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. So Jesus is back in Capernaum. He's hanging out at the house. Okay, they've got a little redemption community going on right at his place. So he's coming, they're teaching, they're preaching, they're having a good time. But everyone had now heard of this, this cleansing of the leper, right? And the other things he had done in previous, in previous passages. And so now everyone is surrounding this house, trying to just get just an earshot of what Christ might be saying. And so it's packed. Everyone's already inside the house, outside the house, whatever. And so guess what? These, these five people show up, right? So you got, so you got four Four men in a paralytic, right, walk into a house. Right? I mean, it's like kind of like a joke the way it starts off. But you have four men in a paralytic, and they walk over to this house, and they say, how, how are we going to get in? And everyone's here. Everyone's here. And so what do they do? They say, okay, well, let's devise a plan. They could just wait patiently. That'd be an option, right? They could, I don't, text him, you know, hey, we're outside. No, they say, okay, we're going to climb on the top of the roof. And we're going to cut a hole in the roof. We're going to move thatch to the side and we're going to drop this paralytic in the hole. Who devises this plan? When we ever do that, you would be arrested. If, this doesn't happen. So these guys, this is a good idea. So these four guys, I don't know how they crowd surf their way over to the top of the roof, okay? With the paralytic, they get to the roof, they slide him on there and they open up this roof and they drop the paralytic in, okay? So this is just... What's happening? What's Jesus going to say? Here we go. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, where are we? Uh, verse 40, or no, verse 5. <laughs> and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, uh, son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone. Okay, who can, for, who can forgive sins but God alone? So, okay, so they walk in and, and they say, okay, we're going to do anything we can to get to Jesus. And, and I ask us, what, what holds us back? What holds you back from following him? What holds you back from going to Christ today? What holds you back from following him in your everyday life? Like, what, is, what are the things that keep you? It wasn't a roof and crowds. We're not going to keep these guys away. So what keeps you? Like, what are the things that say, you know what, well... 
I'd like to go to him and I'd like to be with him, but you know, I'm not going to because of, and insert your thing. And I tell you, we live in, in a culture where it's, it, it's kind of weird sometimes to be the Christian, right? It's getting more weird, actually. So, I mean, I live on a street, like, like most people, right? And, uh, you know, I've met some of my neighbors, and you immediately have that conversation. Like, well, hey, what do you do? They're like, oh, I do this. And they ask me, what do you do? I say, oh, I'm a pastor at a church in town. Immediately, it's like this crazy awkward. They're like, oh, cool. All right. <laughs> it's like, end of conversation. I was like, no, I'm a normal guy. Like, you want to go get a drink or something? Like, okay. And it's just always kind of strange. There's this immediate kind of reaction to, oh, you're, oh, you're with that Jesus guy. But I, I just wonder, what are, the, what are the things for you that say, okay, man, if he's here, what, what are you doing to get to him? And what are things that are keeping you from being there? Okay. It's a question for us. Two questions now. Like, that one and, and the one we mentioned before, just... Uh, what did I even say? I don't even remember. Right? Do you want God or just what he offers? I mean, like what things we have to consider. And so they break into this house. They go through the roof. And what does Jesus say? And I quote, he says, are you going to fix my roof? Right? No, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say that. He says, man, you know what? Hey, your sins are forgiven. I, I look at your faith and that's incredible. Man. Your sins are forgiven. Now, let me tell you, the expectation as you read the story, especially if we just read the one with the leper, right? The leper comes up, he heals the leper right away. So the expectation here is you're going to read it and the paralytic goes in and the expectation is Jesus reaches out, touches, and the paralytic gets up and walks, right? I mean, that's, that just makes sense. But he doesn't say that. The paralytic is dropped in and the first thing he says is, you know what, hey, son, because of your faith, right, your, your sins are forgiven, highlighting even for this man, this paralytic who, who knows how long he might have been paralyzed. It could have been his whole life, given some of the meanings and translations of this word, his whole life maybe being in this state, physically broken, the emotional pain that comes from that socially as not being able to be part of society in that way, spiritually separated from God. And Jesus says, no, there's something even more important than just making you walk today. There's something more important than, than just the physical brokenness of your life. And, and I guarantee you, I guarantee you that every one of us walks in with something this morning. I'm not saying everyone's life is in shambles right now, because it's probably not. Like, I walked in this morning, how are you doing? Great, because this week has been fantastic. My life is not in shambles right now, but there's been moments. But there's certainly things even I could look at this morning, man, I wish that was different. And anything you bring in today, listen, it is important and valuable, but there's something that Jesus is doing here and says, beyond that, son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. This spiritual brokenness, this, this separation from God, the one who created and made us, like it's, it's bridged. Your son, your sins are forgiven. And so here's what happens. The religious elite, the scribes and the Pharisees and those that were in the room look at this and they say, what is he doing? That's blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. And it is the truest thing that any Pharisee has said in the entire scriptures. Only God can forgive sins. And so here's what Christ is doing, both in the story with the leper and the story with the paralytic. Yes, he is restoring emotionally, physically, socially. But above that, he is making his authority and identity known, I am God. Because listen, as a leper, the only person, priests would deem 
someone clean, but the only one who could actually clean someone was God himself. Numbers, Leviticus, you go back and you read the Old Testament, many Jews viewed leprosy as a curse directly from God and the only healing was through God himself. And so as they would see the story of the cleansing of the leper, they wouldn't just say, oh my gosh, this is amazing. This guy made him clean when he should have been made unclean. They wouldn't just say, wow, how could this happen? This is so socially unacceptable. What a savior, what a God. They would say, only God could cleanse the leper. And then they would see the story of the paralytic and say, wait a minute, only God can forgive sins. So what are you saying, Jesus? Are you saying you're God right now? Yes. And that changes everything. That's why these two stories, and there's abundance of great stories about Jesus throughout the Gospel of Mark. We're going to read more. But these two stories I highlight as such culture and worldview-shaping moments for us today and those guys then is that in this moment, this man who was doing amazing things was also saying, I'm doing them as God in the flesh as love come down. And that changes everything for us. If Jesus was just a great teacher and a moral guy, fantastic, and he did some great things, but if he's God, we better listen up. And this stuff has to have more weight than maybe it did if he wasn't. And he's making this claim to us now and to them then. I'm here. The Messiah's here. And I'm coming to restore all of you and I can do it because I'm God. And so they question and they wonder. And so in verse 8, let's wrap up this story. Immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose immediately and picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Okay. So Jesus, knowing that there were people in the crowd that were saying, like, only God can forgive sins. And, and honestly, anyone could just say that. How, how do we know that's even true? And so Jesus, knowing, right, knowing the hearts of everyone in the room, sensing the spirit of everybody there, says, all right, let me ask you a question. What, what's easier? Doing something I can't prove or doing something I can prove? Essentially, that, that's what he's asking. What, what's easier between these two things? And the obvious rhetorical answer there would be, would be A. Obviously, easier to prove something you can't. He says, all right, just, just to show you my authority one more time. He looks over to this man and says, hey, it's time. Get up and go home. And it works. And it works. So Jesus, again, I'm going to restore you spiritually. I'm going to do this thing. And then people, well, yeah, but how do we know that? I mean, only God could do that. How could you actually say that? What authority do you have? And just like that, he speaks and this person's healed. Now let me say this, now at the time, like I said, there were other people maybe doing some healing work, some miracle workers at the time. No one did them like this. No one spoke a sentence and saw healing. I mean, there was some, there was some crazy ritual stuff, there was some smoke stuff, there was some intense stuff. No one had the authority to just say, hey, rise, get up, go, walk and go home. Christ, again, setting himself apart, establishing his identity and his authority. I am God, I am powerful, and I'm still here to forgive your sins. 
I'm here to do something far greater in your life than you could ever ask. You come here asking for these things. You show up to church on Sunday, man, hoping for healing in these different areas. I tell you, I'm going to do that and more. Restoration, redemption. All through Christ. Okay. This is what he, this is what he does. And he does it because he's God. Okay. Socially. Right? Think, think about the leper, the paralytic, again, just socially ostracized outside. He restores them back into society. They can get jobs, they can work, they can go hang out, they can do dinners, they can host, they can, I mean, they're just back in. Okay? Emotionally, the brokenness it's experienced, the pain, the hurt. And listen, everyone, everyone in here, you've had pain. I've had pain. Okay? And God, Christ comes in, he's like, listen, I'm going to restore that too, like that hurt, that betrayal, that whatever it is, that sadness over the death, the fill in the blank of how your heart has been grieved over the whole like, spectrum of your life. Christ gives meaning and purpose and restores that as well physically that there's some of you here, listen, there's this brokenness, there's hurt, there's pain. And he wants to heal that too. And listen, some of you say, well, man, I've prayed for healing. It just hadn't worked. Like, so this obviously doesn't, Jesus isn't true to his word. I guarantee you everything you see in this story, this full restoration of all things is inaugurated and begun here, but I guarantee you it will be fully realized in heaven where he comes. This is but a foreshadow and a foretaste of everything that is to come in eternity. Where there will be no social ostracism. Everyone will be worshiping God. Everyone will be on the same playing field, forgiven and perfect. That there will be no emotional pain or hurt because every tear will be wiped away. But there will be no physical pain because there will be no brokenness. There will, no be, will be, there will be no disease, no famine, no any of that. And then spiritually, the problem that man has had since day one, since, since God creates and then we rebel, the problem we've had was this disconnect with God. And I, listen, and I get it because I did it for years and years myself. I tried to find it, tried to find the answer in different things. I didn't even know that's what I was searching for. And then all of a sudden, I picked up the Bible and I started reading, oh my gosh, is this stuff true? And then I did some research and found out it's true. And I said, oh my God, what if this is the answer to the gap I felt between me and God? What if Jesus actually is the answer? What if he did come to restore me in all of these ways? Man, what, is, what if that's true? And I gave my life over and I'll tell you what, man, it, it, hasn't, it hasn't gotten perfect. I, my ankles hurt. I got bad ankles. I mean, a little bit overweight. could use a little bit of less, less of that. That'd be nice. Emotionally, I still hurt. I'm sad. Man, we, every once in a while, you know, very not getting a fight. I'm sad about that. You know, <laughs> poor Finn, I, my little boy, I like went and knocked his head, you know. Yeah. I, I, he's okay. Gee, everyone's just like, oh. Uh, I knocked his head, right? But, and I see him crying. I experience the emotional turmoil and pain of just, what have I done? You know what I mean? But spiritually. Or once I, I was kind of just, I wouldn't even say that I was just aimlessly wondering, man, where's God and where is he? And I, just, I just didn't know. And I found him and he's good. And the disconnect is, is filled the gap is filled and I'm restored back to the relationship I was supposed to have with him and you're supposed to have with him since the beginning of time. And so even though we blew it, God gave us another chance and it's in Christ who is God. Like if you leave with anything, just, just I mean, Jesus here and this, 
He is a historical... If you're here and you're a skeptic or whatever, I don't know all your stories. But if you're here and you're... And you're this is a historical figure and you have to at least battle with the fact that this historical figure has just said, I am God in the flesh and I'm coming to restore you fully. If you're here and you're a Christian, we have to deal with the fact that Jesus is God and he's come to restore us. So what I ask you today as we wrap up is what does God still need to... What, what do you come with today that you need restoration in? Do you come in with emotional brokenness, physical brokenness, social brokenness, spiritual brokenness, what part of it? And I just want to tell you, please run to Christ this morning and put it at his feet and he will restore. He will restore, if not in this very moment, ultimately. And so bring that before him, kneel at his feet and ask in prayer. Every week we have people up here to pray we have people over here to pray. Come up and just, and just pray. Lay some stuff out. Say, this, is just, this is what's going on and I need Jesus. You don't just need the result. What you need is Jesus. He is the result and then the rest trickles down and you find restoration. Okay. So what is that thing for you? And then that other question, right? Maybe even before you ask, what do I need restoration in? It's, are you just seeking what he can offer you? and not just seeking him himself. Okay. And I, I think that's what Christ is trying to compel the people to right now. And he's going to continue to throughout this book and, and really in the next week as we see another tremendous story, but these two establishing Christ as the God that created all of us. And it is, it is powerful and it is important in us understanding our worldview and the way we walk with Christ and how we, whether we're the most ardent skeptic or the most devout follower, the way that we submit to him and everything. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you very much for your word. And God, thank you that, uh, that we do get to be a fly on the wall in these stories, that we just get to kind of listen in and see in and study and learn, God, about these, uh, these things that have truly happened. God, we've got to think about, like, why, why would you do the things you did? God, I, I like Nate kind of confessed earlier, I confess my own just, like, my own doubt, my own fear of whether or not, like, I'm good enough for you. Whether or not, are you, like, like I'm often, I'm the Pharisee. Like, are you really who you say you are? Are you really God? God, I, I have these things in my heart from time to time, and I thank you that it seems every time that I go there, you just are, are faithful to answer. And so, Lord, I do pray, God, that you would answer every criticism, that you would speak to every part of brokenness in our life. God, that for those who are here that are hurting, that have pain, God, would you bring healing, comfort, and peace. God, that those who come with physical brokenness, that, God, you would bring healing and restoration and health. God, that those who would come with just social brokenness, they just they can't they look to the world and just say, What is going on here and what's my place in it? God, that you would show purpose and life. And that God, that those in, all of us in the room, God, that have kind of just the, this spiritual need for more of you. And wherever we're at in the journey, God, we pray that you would bring your presence. God, that you would bring yourself and you'd bring your spirit, God, to just reveal more and more and more, God, that we would want you and not just the stuff you give us. So God, thank you. As we respond now, 
Convict us. Shape us. Make us a praying people, a dependent people. Make us a worshiping people that we'd sing and raise holy hands to, the, to, to Jesus, to the God of the universe who created everyone and everything we know. It's your name we pray. Amen.